Speed up with podcast Speed Up. Want to read Rationally Speaking and not just listen to it? Come to our website where we're posting complete transcripts of every episode. That's rationallyspeakingpodcast.org. Rationally Speaking is a presentation of New York City Skeptics, dedicated to promoting critical thinking, skeptical inquiry, and science education. For more information, please visit us at nycskeptics.org. Welcome to Rationally Speaking, the podcast where we explore the borderlands between reason and nonsense. I'm your host, Julia Galef, and with me today is our guest, Professor Mark Lipsitch. Mark is a professor of epidemiology and the director of the Center for Communicable Disease Dynamics at the Harvard School of Public Health. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's nice to be here. So Mark has been one of the leading uh, voices uh, warning about the dangers of a particular kind of uh, research called, uh, what, which some people call gain-of-function research. And uh, we're going to be discussing today in this episode um, the potential risks of this kind of research, uh, potential benefits as well, and um, whether or not uh, the scientific community should, in fact, proceed with this research going forward. Uh, Mark, maybe to kick things off, you could just uh, briefly explain what gain-of-function research is and uh, what has happened in the world in the last, say, four years that makes this an, a, a, an issue now. Gain of function is a term that is used very broadly in biology to describe a, a, an approach to biological experiments where uh, one uses genetic techniques or natural selection or artificial selection techniques to try to um, add some function to a living organism, or in this case, a virus. Um, that's w what has been of concern in the last few years is the application of this very valuable appropriate technique to study a function that is quite concerning to uh, many people, which is to add the function of transmissibility to strains of influenza virus that are already very uh, harmful to their uh, to, to people that they infect. What so do you mean by transmissibility um, here? Uh, I mean contagiousness, so the ability to spread from one uh, person to the next, although so, the way that the studies are done is really is of course you can 't do it in people, you do it in ferrets, so you you uh, passage a, a virus that is uh, already very harmful when a person or a ferret gets infected, but you passage it from one ferret to the next um, uh, thereby sort of teaching it genetically how to transmit through the air. And the idea is that those are the sorts of changes that would occur if such a virus uh, became able to transmit from person to person through the air. And the virus, b before this experiment, what, what kind of trans transmissibility did the virus have? Not through the air, clearly. Right. So the virus came to people, uh, the virus that has been uh, the focus of most of the recent experiments has been the H5N1 bird flu virus, which has infected uh, at least several hundreds of people, um, basically by very close contact with uh, infected animals. Um, and 
there may have been occasional spread from one person to the next, but it was very inefficient and not enough to get the virus going as a as a full fledged pandemic or epidemic. Um, it was uh, in its natural form. It's if it can spread from one person to another, it's very very inefficient. And uh, what is the justification for doing this kind of research? What motivated it? Well, the idea of this research is that. Uh, one of the things that we would really like to know about flu viruses is how it is that they jump from being viruses that transmit basically in the, uh, through the feces of birds through the water to other birds, uh, infecting the birds' gastrointestinal tracts, not, not their lungs. So it starts out as a bird gastrointestinal virus, and it occasionally becomes a human virus that transmits uh, from lungs to lungs. And when it does that, that's uh, extremely harmful to humans. Uh, and so we would like to know why it does that, how it does that, and whether we can predict the properties of viruses that are more likely to do that and take uh, countermeasures to understand uh, or to, to try to prevent uh, that from happening. So that's the theory. Um, and the, the concern on the other side uh, is, first of all, the Doing that may not be as simple as as the proponents uh, suggest, but that it, in the process we are doing an experiment that doesn't just put a few people at risk, like other experiments with dangerous pathogens uh, that put the technicians in the lab at risk. This kind of experiment, if it went wrong, potentially puts uh, the entire human population at risk because uh, the strain of flu that's being created is potentially both very transmissible and very harmful to people. Um, and so the fear is of starting a new pandemic by mistake. Right. So you've, so it sounds like you have concerns both about the potential benefits of this kind of research, whether those benefits are as strong as the proponents claim, and also concerns clearly about the risks. Um, and if we could maybe just break down the kinds of risks involved here a little bit more, uh, it seems to me that there's there's at least two kinds there's the kind of risk where the pathogen, um, after it has become, it has been made more transmissible uh, or more virulent, it escapes the lab um, either accidentally or, you know, in theory, uh, one of the lab workers could intentionally release it, I guess. Um, and then on the other hand, there's the kind of risk uh, where this this sort of research, um, after it's been shared and, and published, disseminated, uh, helps people, potentially terrorists, uh, intentionally create more uh, transmissible or virulent pathogens. Is, does that seem like the right breakdown? And, and if so, what, right. which one are you pointing to, or both? Yeah, so I'm pointing to the first. Um, it's an interesting fact about the way this debate has evolved that really the debate centered around the, the second, the, the so-called biosecurity concern yeah. of whether it was a problem to publish the data. Um, from these experiments because it didn't really come to anyone's attention until the work had already been done. So it was too late to ask the question, should we do these experiments? Um, and there was a debate about that. Uh, eventually, it was decided to publish the data from the, the two studies that had been done uh, in 2011, published in 2012, um, for a variety of reasons. Um, but as those uh, decisions were made, uh, uh, several colleagues and I wrote one paper and, and then several other people followed with similar concerns stating that while we don't know whether there's a risk from 
bioterrorism uh, or not from use of the published sequence, we are quite concerned that accidents happen in even the most respected high containment labs uh, on a fairly regular basis. They don't usually result in human infections. And uh, most importantly, when they do result in human infections, those infections don't go anywhere typically because they are uh, working with viruses or bacteria that are not easily transmitted. So the concern is that we're now entering an era where people can make uh, very easily transmitted and uh, virulent pathogens where there's not a lot of immunity in the population and where the risk really goes well beyond the kinds of risks we've uh, been tolerant of when they apply to one or two people in a lab. And you uh, and and I think your co-author Alison Galvani have, I believe, tried to estimate, like, like put some numbers uh, on these potential risks. Uh, what can you give us a rough sense of, of what kind of risk we're talking about in terms of number of lives? Yeah, probability. Yeah, I, I think the the important thing to state at the outset is that we think that the risk of an accident is very small. Um, but that the magnitude is very large and that the uh, combination of that is something to worry about. So we've been looking at these estimates uh, in a series of different ways, but the but it seems that from available data on laboratory accidents in high containment labs in the United States uh, with select agents, which are the more uh, heavily controlled uh, infectious agents uh, that are studied in research labs, about for every thousand laboratories working for one year, there are about two accidental infections of laboratory workers. So that would be the first step in a chain of events that might lead to a pandemic. An accidental infection wouldn't necessarily lead to a pandemic because it might uh, get uh, go nowhere or might might be contained. But based, based on mathematical models of how infectious diseases like flu spread uh, and set to parameters uh, relevant to flu, we think that there's somewhere between a 5% and a 60% chance that one of those accidental infections might spread uh, widely. So that's the, that's the probability. And when you multiply those together, you get somewhere between one in a thousand and one in 10,000 probability that every, for every time, every year that's spent in a high containment laboratory, that there might be an accidental pandemic started. And then we multiply that by the number of labs doing this kind of research? That's right. And that, that of course, is what's up for discussion. Uh, it's, it's in the Western world very small right now because the United States has put a temporary moratorium on funding and, and we were the major funder. Um, but the question is whether it should be allowed to resume. Uh, and it's also probably happening elsewhere that we are, are less aware of, although some papers have been published from China. Uh, can you say a little bit more about this moratorium, just to give people the sort of so, the social context for this debate? Sure. This is, this is an unusual moratorium, right, or an unusual step to take for for the government to step in and say, you know, please pause these experiments that, that you're doing, scientific community, until we can figure out how how risky this is. That's right. Yeah, and the the sort of uh, since this is a rationally speaking podcast, the rationally speaking, the way to, to think about risks is to assess them, uh, make a decision about whether they should be taken and then either take them or not take them rather than, rather than to take them and then question the decision. But, but, uh, historically that's, uh, 
that's how it went. Um, and the uh, sequence of events that led up to it uh, really uh, started with the publication of these papers and then was kind of uh, brought back into the spotlight by a series of um, accidents and discoveries of, of protocol violations at major federal laboratories in the summer uh, of 2014. Uh, there were three events, the discovery of smallpox at NIH, and then events involving anthrax and highly pathogenic bird flu at CDC. So these are some of the leading labs in the country. When you say the discovery, you, you mean that Sorry, that some the discovery of a... There was a stock of smallpox, which was supposedly destroyed in all laboratories worldwide except two uh, several year, many years ago. Uh, they were, it was discovered that there was a, a vial of viable smallpox sitting in a uh, sort of forgotten in a cold room at NIH, um, which was a, a protocol violation because they should have destroyed it, but it was not a, nobody was at any risk. The other two incidents were at CDC and were <clears throat> involved um, exposure of uh, about 80 CDC employees, possible exposure to anthrax because of inadequate decontamination, mm -hmm. uh, something we just heard more about uh, in a series of accidents or of, of uh, inadequate decontaminations at Army labs in the last few weeks. Um, right. And then there was another uh, incident involving sending out the wrong strain of bird flu, supposedly a mild strain, but actually a very severe strain uh, because some vials got switched at CDC. So there was this sort of convergence of multiple events involving human error circumventing the very high levels of containment uh, that were available in the well-designed labs at CDC, but, uh, but then uh, undoing all the benefits of that because uh, the agent was handled in a way that it shouldn't have been uh, because people didn't realize what it was. Right. So none of these incidents were involving the gain-of-function research specifically, but they did sort of in increase our uh, the, the probability that we should put on a similar accident happening with the gain-of-function research. Yes? Um, exactly uh, right. They did not involve gain-of-function. They didn't even involve, uh, in most cases, the, the same uh, organisms. But what they did was to focus public attention on something you could learn if you read uh, obscure papers in the American Biosafety Journal, um, but was not something people knew about, which is that uh, accidents happen in high containment labs at a quite high rate, um, as I described. Um, none of these accidents involved human infections, but, but two per thousand laboratory years do. And so it focused people on the fact that uh, you, these pathogens are dangerous and we need to improve our efforts to contain them, but also on the idea that uh, as I've tried to, to phrase it, that risks we might be willing to accept when they involve one person or a few people getting uh, sick in the laboratory. We, we don't like them, but we might be willing to accept them for the sake of biomedical science uh, if they're rare. We might not be willing to accept if the consequences uh, are for the entire globe instead of a few people. Right. So as I've understood it, one of the counterpoints is that the risks are not uh, just one-sided, you know, the, the, the question, the question of, uh, 
Like, like deciding to be risk averse does not necessarily point to not doing gain of function research uh, in that there is already a risk that there will be uh, naturally occurring mutations uh, or I suppose maliciously induced mutations in uh, some strain of flu virus that will cause it to be suddenly more transmissible between humans and can put us at risk of a pandemic um, and that the gain of function research uh, helps us sort of stay ahead of that game and uh, do various things like like develop vaccines or monitor strains of flu developing around the world, et cetera, to see which ones could be a threat, and that that is actually reducing risk so that it's not really clear um, that that the risk is lower by not doing the research. What do you think about that? That's right. And that that's another way of asking the question, what are the benefits, potential benefits of this kind of research? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, I think that's a it's a complicated question and it depends particularly on what we're comparing uh, this work to so a very hard question to answer is what might we forgo in terms of scientific knowledge if instead of doing this work we did nothing or we put the money towards deficit reduction or towards a bomber or something um, I wouldn't buy very much of a bomber but <laughs> um, uh, so then the question is should we do science or should we not? And we know that many scientific discoveries lead to totally unanticipatable benefits and, uh, and really uh, great things for human well-being, including health. So if the question were, should we just ban this research and, and thereby make a loss to science, I think it would be a hard question uh, to predict what the benefits are. But what would actually happen is that we would do other research, probably on flu, maybe on other infectious diseases, um, with the relatively small amount of money that's at stake. And so it's really a question of whether we want to do this research on flu or other research on flu. Let's just keep it on flu for now. And so there the question is whether the, the sort of marginal benefits of doing gain-of-function research compared to other completely safe alternative kinds of flu research are, uh, are really compelling. So if we, if we frame it as what are the unique benefits of gain-of-function research that we can't really hope to learn to gain any other way, then I think it's a little bit easier to answer the question. And I think there are some scientific questions uh, that can only be answered by gain-of-function research, such as if you take the Vietnam strain of H5N1 uh, and put it in ferrets, what is required to make it transmissible between ferrets? I think the only way to answer that is to make it transmissible between ferrets, and that's been done. Uh, and that's what the first, uh, one of the first studies was. But surely we weren't interested in that question specifically. We were interested in that as a sort of, as part of the broader question of, of whether flu could whether avian flu could mutate into something more dangerous for humans, right? And but you don't think that those ex you don't think that that question is uh, is uniquely answerable by gain of function research. Um, I think that the question of whether of, of how it does it, well, uh, I, I think the question of whether the avian flu can mutate into something that's dangerous for humans. In principle, could only be answered in humans, and that's a an ethical study to do. 
Um, so doing it in ferrets perhaps gets us closer um, to answering the question of how transmissibility can uh, can how easily transmissibility in ferrets can uh, develop. But the the people doing this research actually recently have begun to say that if the strain that came out of their ferrets was released on the subway, it would not lead to uh, extensive transmission. They've begun saying that it in fact is adapted to ferrets and not to humans. So there's a bit of a disconnect between the claims of why this is supposed to be beneficial, uh, which is that it's a model for humans, and the claims in response to concerns about risk, which is that, oh, it's not actually going to be harmful for humans. And both claims have been made, uh, so it's a little bit difficult to, to disentangle. I see. But isn't there, I mean, isn't the fact that the virus was shown to be uh, able to mutate into something transmissible between ferrets, whereas that had not previously uh, been been known to be possible, isn't that at least sort of Bayesian evidence for the the idea that the flu could, that the strain of the flu could mutate into something transmissible between humans? Um, I would say it probably is, but I think that that is, that Bayesian, that ba incremental Bayesian evidence is of limited value for making decisions. So I think it does increase our, our posterior on the idea that we uh, might have a threat from H5N1. But I think that before that experiment was done, the prudent decision was to put a certain amount of resources into preparations for H5N1. I would say more resources into preparations for uh, that would be useful against any flu pandemic, uh, because we don't really know which one the next one is going to be. And if you're if you're uncertain of what it's going to be, you you put more resources towards general purpose solutions. Um, and after that study, I think the prudent decision is the same decision. So I don't think that it's updated our information enough to make any different decision. Um, Interesting. Uh, what the proponents of this work further claim is that as we survey the landscape of uh, the hundreds to thousands of known um, outbreaks of flu in birds, uh, and there are obviously many other outbreaks of flu in birds that we don't know about because we don't do enough surveillance and in other animals. <clears throat> As we survey those, they say, if we know what mutations to look for in the viral genomes, we might be able to uh, prioritize better which flu strains we take action against and which ones we don't. Um, and that's where the, the, the question of general purpose versus uh, specific actions against certain strains comes into play. So the, the sorts of things we can do against specific strains is if we see a strain that we think is really a pandemic risk, like the H, some of the H5N1 strains uh, in Asia have seemed to be over the last decade, we can go and kill the chickens that, are, that we know of that are infected with those strains. We can develop vaccine seed stocks against those strains, which gets us somewhat closer to having a vaccine if we need to develop one. Um, those are the main two kinds of activities, whereas general purpose actions would be 
stockpiling antivirals, working to develop a vaccine that works against all strains of flu, which is a major research project underway, program underway uh, in many labs in the world, um, and making some headway. Uh, we try to improve public health surveillance uh, so that we can deal better with the epidemic when it comes, those sorts of things. Um, and so, of course, we would like to know which strains are most threatening uh, and try to be responsive to those. But given the large numbers of, of strains that we never see, like the Mexican strain that caused the last pandemic, we never saw that coming. It wasn't until hundreds of people in Mexico had pneumonia uh, that we knew we had a pandemic on our hands. Um, uh, we didn't have some kind of advanced warning because we weren't looking in pigs in Mexico. <clears throat> so the question is, do we, do we really want to make an even brighter lamppost uh, to search under for our lost keys, um, or do we want to invest in something that will will make us uh, more prepared, whatever it is? And uh, for for those listeners who haven't uh, heard the uh, parable of the lost keys, do you want to do you want to tell it, Mark, or should I? Uh, so uh, a guy was searching under a lamppost uh, for his keys that he had dropped. And someone said, "Why are you looking under the lamppost uh, when you for your keys? Weren't you didn't you drop them over here uh, on the other side of the street?" And he said, "This is where the light is. Right. <laughs> That's why I'm looking here." So the question is, do we want to figure out a better way to interpret the little bit of data that we have, or do we want to focus our efforts on the very likely outcome that we will not see the strain coming, uh, and therefore having the best tools in the world to uh, predict it, uh, its risk level isn't much help, or do we want to rather focus on things, on, on strategies for public health that are robust to our being wrong about predictions? And this is a general idea that's out there. Uh, um, Richard Danzig has written about uh, in his uh, article, Driving Beyond the Headlights. Um, he's written about the idea that we should make uh, we, that, that humans have a, a tendency to try to make predictions, almost a compulsion to try to make predictions, and a tendency, unfortunately, to overbelieve those predictions, and that what we should be doing, in his view, is making our decisions much more robust about against the possibility that our predictions are wrong. Keep trying to make them because we can't help it, uh, but but set up our decision making so that uh, the predictable level of being wrong very often. Uh, isn't catastrophic for our decisions. There was a, an interesting point that you made, I forget where, maybe uh, in the CSER uh, debates that that I, I want to talk about now. Um, you, you said that the, the debate over whether gain-of-function research should proceed um, involves both your, like, like the answer that you give to that question involves both your estimate of what the potential benefits are and also your estimate of what the potential risks are. And in theory, the answers that, that someone would give to those two questions are like a priori independent. So there's, there's no, you know, the risk could be high and the benefits could be high, the risk could be low, the benefits could be low, or the risks could be high and the benefits low, or vice versa. Um, there's sort of those four possibilities. Um, and so in theory, you know, there should be people in all four quadrants. Um, but in practice, it seems that the people who think 
the risks are high also think the benefits are low. And the people who think that the risks are low also think the benefits are high. Um, so, so the answer, uh, like the, the overall answer for most people is sort of clear uh, because there's, you know, a point, two points in the pro column or two points in the con column. And this is interesting that this is actually the pattern of, uh, of risk and benefit calculus that we see. Um, and it, uh, you, you sort of like mentioned this point in passing and didn't really go into an explanation of why you think that is or what we should conclude from that observation. Uh, but it reminded me of uh, some, some research in cognitive, in the, the field of biases and heuristics in, uh, in cognitive science about, about this, this phenomenon, basically, that, that when people uh, think that the risks of something are low, they tend to think the benefits are high and vice versa, um, even you know when that's sort of objectively not the case. So I'm, I was wondering if you were trying to point at a potential bias there or, or why you think we see that pattern. Yeah, I mean, I think the nature of this kind of bias is that it's very hard to, to analyze it from within the, the debate once you have a position. Um, so uh, even this answer obviously should be taken with a grain of salt. Um, I think that um, part of the explanation may be that we, we are very unused to, and we should be unused to, in science, trying to demand a very clear, direct benefit from research. That's not what most science is about. We don't, sensible science policy does not, uh, does not demand uh, immediate or predictable benefits um, for every, every project. There probably should be some, but some projects like that, but probably not all. Um, also, most science is essentially riskless uh, or very close to riskless with a few exceptions. Um, and so I think that to even come to the benefit question it, at the level that I and others have been pushing uh, it requires that you assume that there is a, uh, requires that you be concerned about a risk. Um, so risky research, in other words, should have a much higher bar for benefits than risk-free research. Um, so I think that the people who have who started the debate, and, and I was one of them, came at it from noticing that there was a large risk. Uh, and then at least my own evolution was I started looking at the benefits and thinking, wow, these seem to be significantly overclaimed because they're not as generalizable as people think as people claim and uh, all sorts of other reasons. And so I think it, at least in my own case, it was a ma matter of the threshold condition for even entering the, the thought process was noticing the risk um, and that the benefit uh, then becomes subject to much more uh, rigorous treatment than, than science normally should be. And as a practicing scientist, I run a lab with bacteria uh, and do a lot of uh, epidemiologic work, uh, I would not want every study that I was proposing to do to get rigorous, uh, rigorously analyzed for whether it was going to have a life-saving benefit in the short term. I don't think any, any science, most science should have that. Um, most flu research certainly shouldn't have that. But uh, I think when, when you propose research that puts large numbers of people at risk, the, the, ethical and societal constraints should change uh, and there should be a much stronger presumption against doing it until you really have a, a, an overwhelming reason to do that. 
So you're pointing, uh, it seems to me that you're pointing at a, a kind of selection effect where uh, the debate is mostly populated by people who think uh, the answer is relatively clear cut, um, being that those being the people who think the benefits are are low and the risks are high or, you know, relative to the, the common wisdom. Um, because, you know, those are the people who think uh, the issue is sort of important enough to to be worth discussing publicly. Yeah, I think something like that is probably at work. Yeah. Um, and I, I look at another uh, another area. I was I just this morning actually thought of an area where I fall in one of those off diagonal categories, and I was very pleased oh, yeah. that I'm not. Uh, <laughs> um, which is antibiotic use in animals, uh, which many people think is an important cause of antimicrobial resistance, and it is in the the bacteria in animals. Um, uh, and the industry argues, has argued, although they're kind of softening now that it's important to making food cheap, that we can use lots of antibiotics in animals and it increases productivity and all of that. Um, and the, the anti side says, well, it causes tremendous drug resistance. I actually think it's low risk, low benefit, and would probably say it's more risk than benefit and, and be against it. But uh, most of my, almost all my friends in infectious diseases think it's high risk, low benefit, uh, and which makes the decision easy. Uh, I think the risk is pretty low. I think it, it does make resistant organisms, but those are not organisms that typically uh, infect and kill people. Uh, sometimes they infect people and don't kill them, and sometimes they uh, don't get into people. But it's the evidence that, that people have died from resistant organisms that got resistant because of animal use of antibiotics, I think is very, very small. Um, mm. So I think it is possible to have an off-diagonal view, um, but, but, but you know, it would take an awful lot of uh, activation energy to get me going really into the public sp space saying that because it's, it's, there's not a good op-ed to write. What do, you, what do you say? It's really, it's really hard and it's kind of not that big a deal in fact, but, but it's overflown. <laughs> you know, no one wants to read that. It's not a very interesting yeah. position. Not seeing the, the page views uh, skyrocketing for that one. Indeed. Yep. Um, we have a few minutes left and I think uh, what I want to cover in our remaining time is uh, so the, the object level question about gain of function research and the, the risks versus benefits is is like very interesting and important in its own right. Um, but I think there's also this interesting sort of meta question about the way that this issue has been discussed and and handled by you know not just scientists but governmental bodies um, and the, and the press. We could widen the sphere of of actors here. Um, I'm wondering whether you think that that the scientific community and the government et cetera have handled this well or not. Uh, I, I guess there's, you know, there's different ways you could approach that. There's the question of like, should they have done a risk benefit calculus before the research proceeded instead of, you know, halting it in the middle. Um, but there's also like how, you know, they're, they're like smart, well-intentioned, uh, very accomplished scientists sort of on both sides of this debate. Um, how well do you think that they have, uh, have handled the, the debate productively or no? Yeah, I think, um, a few things to be said. I think that if it had been flagged properly, it would have been very important, very appropriate to get do the risk benefit assessment early. But in practice, uh, 
for whatever reason, it was not appropriately flagged as a danger. And even once the research had been done, it took a while for people to decide what it was that was really concerning about it. So I think uh, you can't fault people too badly for the for the retrospective nature of the debate. Um, in terms of the uh, why it was not flagged early, or I have to remind people that uh, information on laboratory accidents is extremely hard to pry out of the hands of the authorities. USA Today has been trying valiantly to get a Freedom of Information request answered uh, by CDC on laboratory accidents uh, and has been told it will take three years. Uh, that was about a month ago. Wow. wow. Um, uh, it's, there are all sorts of, there's all sorts of secrecy about laboratory accidents and that's bad for everyone. It's bad for, uh, I mean, it just, it makes decision making very hard and it makes it hard to figure out what the rates at which these things happen is. Um, in terms of the sort of scientific community, I actually think the debate has been reasonably uh, high level and cordial, uh, with the exception of one other podcast, not this one, um, <laughs> where it sometimes gets a little bit ad hominem. But, uh, but uh, I'd say overall that the, the public debate uh, and even the private discussions that I've had have been nothing but, uh, but polite and uh, and even respectful. I mean, the, uh, there are definitely some friendships across the across this divide that were framed that were formed in the course of this. So that's a, a nice surprise uh, that I think, especially, is surprising to people in Washington who aren't used to <laughs> bipartisan friendship um, anymore. Um, and then I think that uh, there is a lot of very careful work being done now within the government to try to get this right. And I think that's crucial because I think this is the first of a number of uh, problems that are going to come up as biology becomes more powerful and the uh, and the scope of what we can do uh, to organisms becomes greater. Uh, we've already heard with the debates over gene editing uh, a little taste of of the kinds of discussions of where society and science intersect um, and there will be many more of those. And I think uh, having having a system for a process for uh, discussing risks and benefits and ethics and uh, in a context where we're not used to it uh, is going to be very important going forward. Good. Well, that gives me a, a, a little glimmer of hope about about the future of uh, of technology and science and humanity. So thank you for that. I don't often get those. Good. Uh, well, we're just about out of time for this section of the podcast. So I'm going to wrap up this conversation and we'll move on to the Rationally Speaking Pick. Welcome back. Every episode on Rationally Speaking, we invite our guest to recommend the Rationally Speaking pick of the episode. This is a book or website or movie or something else that tickles his or her rational fancy. Mark, what's your pick of the episode? My pick is a uh, policy brief. So I'm getting really uh, working in the really exciting area uh, of policy briefs. But I, <laughs> this one was really inspiring for me. Uh, it is written by Richard Danzig. Uh, it's from the Center for the for a New American Security, 
and it's called Driving in the Dark, 10 Propositions about Prediction and National Security. And uh, I read it uh, this past uh, winter and found it to be one of the most uh, compelling descriptions of how to think rational, rationally about uh, rare events and the problems of prediction, not just in the national security context, which is his specialty, but uh, in many, many other contexts. So it's a uh, addition to uh, rational thinking. Excellent. Well, we'll put a link to that uh, up on the podcast website alongside this episode. Uh, we are all out of time. Mark, thank you so much for joining us on the show. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. My pleasure. Bye-bye. This concludes another episode of Rationally Speaking. Join us next time for more explorations on the borderlands between reason and nonsense. The Rationally Speaking podcast is presented by New York City Skeptics. For program notes, links, and to get involved in an online conversation about this and other episodes, please visit rationallyspeakingpodcast.org. This podcast is produced by Benny Pollock and recorded in the heart of Greenwich Village, New York. Our theme, Truth, by Todd Rundgren, is used by permission. Thank you for listening.